Well, we continue this morning in our series to the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. And we're traveling about 30 miles east-southeast of Sardis, where we were last week, to the city of Philadelphia. No, of course, not the one in Pennsylvania, but the one in modern-day Turkey. It's a city that at the time of the letter had been around roughly 200 years, which actually makes it the youngest of the seven cities. And it's important to note that this city was founded to be a missionary city. Not a missionary city for Christianity or Judaism, but actually for Hellenism, for Greek influence and thought in the area. And in 17 AD, there was a major earthquake in Philadelphia. It leveled most of the city. And for many, many years afterwards, citizens wouldn't even live inside the city. They would set up their houses outside. That's some things you need to know as we enter into this letter. Now, young worshipers, I'm going to ask you the same question that you've been asked every week in this series. You should be ready for it. What's the promise given to the one who conquers? Hear now the word of the Lord from Revelation 3, verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, would you show us both your glory and your power? Would you give us power and strength to endure? And would you now give us ears to hear what your spirit says? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. A mile is four laps around a standard 400-meter track. And it sounds easy, but if you've ever ran it, timed or otherwise, you know how difficult it can be. But here's the interesting thing about those four laps. The third lap is the hardest. It's not the first lap when you're ready to go and you have all the energy and you're excited about it. And it's not even the fourth lap when you're thinking, you know what, I'm either going to make or break my time. I know know what I have left and I'm just going to give everything I have. It's the third lap. When things start to get difficult, if you wonder if you can go on, if you wonder how you're going to endure, things get hard. Now, you may or may not have ever run a mile before, but you know the feeling, somehow, some way, of being on your third lap. Maybe you're on your third lap at work. You've been there a while, nothing is new to you, but you're now struggling to keep going. Maybe you're looking for work or looking to change your work, and you feel like you're in the third lap of that search. The pressure is on, and it's getting harder and harder. Maybe you're on your third lap of a difficult relationship a friend, a family member, a child, a parent, a spouse, and you just feel like you want to pack it in and quit. Maybe you're in school, and yes, you've entered into summer break, but it's full of summer school, summer work, and other activities, and you feel like you just can't make it through. Maybe you're on the long journey of grief, and you wonder how you can endure as things go forward. Maybe you feel like you're on the third lap when it comes to your faith. 
You know the right answers. You come to church, but any conversion, enthusiasm, and youthful vigor you might have had have worn off, and life is hard. We become cynical and skeptical. And in all these, the temptation is just to quit, to let it all go. Why endure? Especially as we see other people who let it go. This temptation and need for endurance was something also felt by the Christians in the ancient city of Philadelphia. As we'll see, these were third-lap people. Their faith is not new. They've been around for years. Yet they've experienced persecution and pain. They lived in a place and time where they were social outcasts because of their faith. And they too must have thought, can I continue? How can I endure? They would have been tempted also to let it all go. But to them and for us this morning comes this letter, and its message is this. Because Christ is able, we endure. Because Christ is able, we endure. And we'll see that Christ is able to open a door for us, and Christ is able to keep us. First, Christ is able to open a door for us. This is verses 7 through 9 of the passage. Look with me at how the letter starts, when, what Jesus says of himself in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Christ begins by saying he is holy and true. This is language reserved for God, and he's using it of himself, saying, I am God. And then he follows it with a statement of his ability. He says this, he has the key of David, opens and no one shuts, shuts and no one opens. Well, what's this key of David that he's referring to? Well, we heard it referenced in the book of Isaiah, chapter 22, during our Old Testament reading this morning. You see, it was a prophecy that, uh, a lot, <clears throat> excuse me, that Elakiah would, would be given authority, symbolized by the key of David. That there was a steward who was abusing his authority, using it for himself, actually hurting God's people. And there's a prophecy of one who's going to come and use that authority rightly and well. And Christ says that it's actually he, the son of David, who's truly holding the key of David. He's truly the fulfillment of what Eliakim was actually pointing to in the book of Isaiah. He says, only I can open the way to God's people and into God's presence. You see, David was the ultimate Israelite king. And so to say you have his key means you have entrance into the people of God, into the presence of God. And Jesus says, actually, I have that key as the true son of David. He can open the way into God's people and into God's presence. And when he does that, no one will be able to shut it. And he continues, verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So he's clear the Philadelphians have little power. This word for little is where we get our English prefix micro. He's saying you have tiny power, small power. You are not able to open a door for yourself. But Christ says, I have opened a door for you and have permanently opened it. You see, he affirms to them that even though they have little power, they've kept his name and have not, they've kept his, his faith and not denied his name. It's amazing. This letter is one of only the two out of the seven that there's no strong rebuke. It's simply encouragement after encouragement. So what's this door that he's talking about? Yes, we've said it's entrance into God's people and entrance into his presence for the Christians in Philadelphia. And this door has been opened by Christ himself. But as many of you might know, this phrase, an open door, occurs frequently in the New Testament, and it often means an opportunity for God's work. For example, four times in the New Testament, it's used to describe an opening for God's work that brings conversion. Think about the book of Acts when this is used. 
And I think this sense, believe it or not, is also present here, that there's an open door for God's work in Philadelphia. Because look at verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, we have to pause because we're thrown off by the phrase synagogue of Satan. We wonder, what does that mean? That is very intense language. Well, there were Jews in Philadelphia. There was a synagogue in Philadelphia. And indeed, many of the Christians were Jews. And they would have been thrown out of the synagogue, cast out by their friends and family, persecuted. And if this language is uncomfortable, we've got to remember this. Satan means the deceiver, the one who deceives, we see in Hebrew in the Old Testament. And so Christ is saying, this is the synagogue of Satan because they're deceived. They don't understand that Jesus holds the key of David. They're still looking for another Messiah, but they don't realize he's already come. What's interesting about the synagogue, in fact, is that New Testament scholar Greg Beale notes that even Jewish authors roughly around the same time wrote condemning the synagogue in Philadelphia because they were unfaithful to Judaism. So there was a lot going on here. We actually also have another letter written to Philadelphians, which actually occurs within a generation or two of the New Testament. It's written by a man named Ignatius. And he describes the same thing and calls them still to faithfulness. He says this, But if anyone preach the Jewish law unto you, listen not to him. For it is better to hearken to Christian doctrine from a man who has been circumcised than to Judaism from one who uncircumcised. But if either of such persons do not speak concerning Jesus Christ, there in my judgment but as monuments and sepulchres of the dead, upon which are written only the names of men. He's engaging the language from this passage and even, I think, the, the, the language from the passage of Isaiah. That these people who are only looking out for themselves or only looking out for their own names are actually dead, whether they know it or not. It's also very important that it's only Christ who's using this intense language here. Because only Christ is the true one with the key of David. He's only the ultimate judge. We are not. But in fact, amazingly, the very same door open to the Philadelphian Christians is open to them. Look at the end of this verse. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. He speaks of them bowing down and learning Christ's love. You see, Greg Beale also points out that bow down is the language of worship. And in the book of Revelation, every time we see worship, either of God and the things of God or of the things of this world, it's always voluntary. So when he says these people will bow down and worship and will get to know the love of Christ, this is a love of conversion, of transformation. This is the great beauty of the Christian faith. Yes, it's exclusive, but no one is ever out of God's reach. It rejects any way, but it receives anyone. So clearly in these verses, Christ is able to open a door, both for the Philadelphian Christians and those around him. And this door is often the work of ministry. I'm actually reminded of a famous line from The Sound of Music. At the beginning of the movie, you have Maria, who's having a really hard time enduring being a nun. She's always doing the wrong thing, saying the wrong thing. And so the Reverend Mother actually has her go be a governess, and she doesn't want to do it. She thinks it's going to be even harder, and she says, if this is God's will. And as she's leaving the abbey, she looks up and says that famous line. She says, when the Lord closes a door, somewhere he always opens a window. What does she mean by that? She means, especially in that moment, there's still an opportunity for her to serve the Lord. She thought it was going to be this way, but now there's a path opened up to her. Now, in terms of the way the Lord sees it, the door was always open, whether she understood it or not. But now she knows there's still an opportunity to serve the Lord, even though things are difficult, even though it requires endurance. And that's what Christ is saying here. There's an open door for you, Philadelphians, despite the things that you're going through. That door is wide open, whether you see it or not. 
So then what does it mean for us that Christ is able to open a door? You see, we must recognize what Christ says of the Philadelphians is true of us. We have but little power. I know that's easy for us to say, but do we actually believe it when we say it? Because we're told everywhere we look that we have great power, that we're supposed to open doors for ourselves, make our own way in the world. But what can we really do? I mean, from the weather to the war in Ukraine, from traffic to the global economy, what control do we really have? You see, if we don't acknowledge that we have little power, we're going to be stuck trying to open a door for ourselves into God's presence that we cannot open. But also, like the Philadelphians, we're called to keep God's word and rest not in our power, but in his power. Rest in the fact that Christ has already made a way for us. Christ has opened the door and no one can shut it. Yet still, we're in difficulty and in trial, but that door is still open. It has not been shut. And even as we struggle, blessedly, we're often given times where we can rest in God's power. Times of worship, observing the sacraments, fellowship with other believers, where we find that rest, where we see again the fact that God has not closed us out. And all Christians are a part of this. All Christians have this opportunity for God's word to go forth. Just as we saw the Philadelphians have an opportunity, we also have an opportunity placed before us so that others might see God's love. Whether you're 6 or 96, there is an open door before you so that in your endurance, others might see and hear about the love and power of God. Maybe you're not a Christian or you're struggling with your faith. A door is open to you. This passage is clear. A door is open to you. A door is open into the presence of God, a door of love, a door of hope. And as we'll see, a door of eternal stability and security. Which brings us to the second thing Christ is able to do. Christ is able to keep us. Verses 10 through 13. Christ, again, affirms their faith. Look with me at verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Christ, again, affirms their faith. This time affirms their patient endurance. One word here in the Greek. One powerful word. And he says, he will keep them from the hour of trial. Now, what's that mean? This preposition from can mean through. It could be that he's saying, I'm going to keep you through the trial. But the biggest help in understanding is the rest of the verse. It says this, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming in the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. This language of to try those who dwell on the earth occurs frequently in the book of Revelation and it's always referring to those who don't believe in God. So what Christ is saying is to these, a testing, a trial will come, but because you believe in me, you will be kept, you will be shielded from it. Now, it's not teaching that one day believers will be raptured up into heaven and everybody left will undergo a trial. That's not what it's saying. But despite trials now, we will be secure at the ultimate trial. Ultimately, when we all stand before the judgment seat, we will be secure. Because who's at the judgment seat? Christ. The one who has opened a door for us. So we will dwell secure even at that ultimate trial. Which is why he follows it up like this in verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. He says he's coming soon. Literally, he's coming quickly. This doesn't mean he's going to come tomorrow when he's writing these words. Actually, it's like this. If if you ever talk to somebody about an event and they said, it all happened so fast. I didn't have any time to think about it. That's what this language means. He is coming soon. It's all going to happen so fast before we even have time to think about it. But we don't know when. And so he tells the Philadelphian Christians, he tells them to endure to hold fast so that no one might seize their crown. 
Now this crown is a reward. It's, it's the reward. And these Christians, though they're small in number, though they're little in power, they already have this reward in Christ. Whether they see it or not, or understand it or not, they have it. And so he tells them to press on, to keep on, even in the midst of trials, and he will keep them. Christ then describes the reward, verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, my own new name. Young worshipers, what are the promises here to the one who conquers? Three things. There'll be pillars in God's temple. They'll never go out of his presence. And three new names will be written on them. The name of God, the name of the the new Jerusalem, and the new name of Christ. These are promises of stability and identity. And they are beautiful, beautiful hopes. And these hopes are what fuels the Christian's endurance, these promises. And yet, as you see in ancient cities, they often had these civic halls which would have pillars inside of them. And these pillars would have sometimes the names of gods, sometimes the names of officials, sometimes the names of religious leaders, but definitely not Christians. Philadelphians would be aware of these things but say, we never have a pillar, we're never a pillar. And yet also in Philadelphia, they would know the instability of these things. They would have seen and have heard of the great earthquake which crushed these halls, which took down the pillars. And Christ is actually saying, there's there's a promise here for them of an eternal, stable pillar in God's house written with his own name on it. What a beautiful and contextual promise to these Christians. Christ promises they will be stable pillars in his house. Even more interesting in the history of the city is after the earthquake, for about five years or so, the Roman government said, you don't have to pay taxes because you're dealing with all the destruction. And so they actually renamed their city for a little bit. They renamed it Neo-Caesarea, Caesar's new city. But now, Jesus is saying, you'll have a different name. Not Caesar's new city, but the city of my God, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. That's who you are. And now they will prove that they bear the name of the one true God. To be a missionary city, not for Hellenism, not for Greek thought, but for Christ himself and his love. That's what they're being called to do. And then it finishes out, verse 13. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Christ is able to keep them through trials and unto secure an eternal life by God's power. But without Christ to keep us, without Christ to keep them, everything would have fallen apart. In the novel The Promise by author Chaim Potok, there's a character named Abraham Gordon. He's a Jewish scholar, but he's an atheist. He doesn't believe in God. But he's going through this tremendous stress in his life, this really hard trial. He's trying to endure. and He doesn't know how to do it. And at one point he says to his wife, sometimes I wish that there were a personal God. And she says, would you pray to him? And he says, I'd have someone to shout at. You see, what he understands is without a God, without a personal God, there's nowhere to go in your pain. There's nowhere to go in the trials. There's no meaning for suffering. There's no comprehensive morality for this world. We're left with no strength to endure, no reason for suffering. We need someone to keep us. And even he understands that. So what a blessed promise it is that Christ says he will keep us. So what does it mean then for us today that Christ keeps us? Well, first, we may be in trials now, but we will be kept from the ultimate trial. Much like the Philadelphians, they might not have seen it, they might not have known it, but we have the crown of life in Christ already. And the call is to press on, to hold that securely, to hold fast. So seniors, as you head off to college, hold fast. 
A simple way to do that is the very first Sunday you're there, find a church. Hold fast to your faith. Families seeking to love one another, hold fast. Husbands, wives, parents, children, hold fast to the faith. Those seeking to love people who are hurting you, hold fast. Those that are in work or in search for work, hold fast and endure. Those who are questioning your faith, hold fast. Not because we are keeping ourselves, but because God is keeping us. And Christians facing death, hold fast, knowing the unassailable promise of what's to come. The blessedness of eternal security and stability in Christ. Eternity in God's presence. We can endure, we can hold fast, but only because Christ is able. But that does bring us to an underlying question in all of these things. Is Christ actually able? How do we know that Christ is able? You see, we know Christ is able because of what he's done for us, because of his death and resurrection. The Christian faith stands or falls on the resurrection. And because it is true, that's how Christ has opened a door for us. That's how he's he's brought us into God's presence. Because though we were running away from God, he ran toward us. Because we had no power to make a way for ourselves, he made a way for us by his power. He, the eternal son of David, opened a door for us to life through his death that no one can shut. And he is able to keep us. We are in him by faith conquerors. No, Romans says we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Because he endured the cross. He endured. He endured the cross and despised its shame. And we no longer fear death because he rose from the dead in glory on the third day. The interesting thing about the city of Philadelphia is the name means the city of one who loves his brother. It was named after an ancient king who the Romans were trying to convince to to, to join with them and overthrow his own brother, and he refused. So his brother set up the city and called it the city of Philadelphia. But you see, the ultimate fulfillment of that name, the one who truly loves his brother, is Christ. Even when we did not love him, while we were still sinners, he died for us. He moved toward us. And now he is able to keep us and to bring his kingdom. And as it says, he will come soon. Not new Caesar's city, not our own kingdoms, but the new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven and we will dwell with God. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Christ is able, so we endure. We talked earlier about a letter from Ignatius to the city of Philadelphia early in the second century. He wrote another letter around the same time to an early church father named Polycarp. And he has the same ideas of endurance in that letter. I want to read a brief section of it. He says this, Stand firm, as does the anvil which is beaten. It is the part of a noble athlete to be wounded and yet to conquer. And especially, we ought to bear all things for the sake of God, that he may also bear with us. Be ever becoming more zealous than what you are. Weigh carefully the times. Look for him who is above all, eternal and invisible, yet who became visible for our sakes. Impalpable and impassable, yet who became passable on our account. And who in every kind of way has suffered for our sakes. He is calling Polycarp to endure because of the power of Christ. But what transforms our knowledge of these letters is knowing when Ignatius wrote them. He wrote them as he was in chains traveling to Rome to be killed for his faith. So he's not saying, yeah, you endure and I have a fine life over here. He's living that out himself as he's writing these letters. Only he can endure because of Christ's power, not because of his own. Endurance comes through Christ. 
Now, young worshipers, I have one more thing for you this morning. I have an activity that I want you to do sometime this afternoon or later this week. Parents, you are welcome. Anybody who wants to do this can do it as well. What you need to do is try balancing on one leg. But you need to do it two ways. The first way is I want you to look at something that's moving. Whether it be a ceiling fan, the cars going by, leaves blowing in the breeze. Try See how long you can balance on one leg. See how long you can endure that way. But then the second time, I want you to look at something that's fixed, that's not moving. Look at the trunk of a tree. Look at a brick wall. Something that doesn't move. And you'll see you can endure much longer by staring at that which doesn't move. By staring at that which is fixed. You see, Christ, believers, is our fixed point. The Bible says he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we can rest secure in him. We can endure through his power because he's able. No matter what, we look to him. For he's able to open a door for us. He's able to keep us. Christ is able. And because he is able, we endure. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us, by your Spirit, the strength to endure. Would you help us to see anew the power of Christ, his stability, his eternal security that he's provided for us through his death. Lord, I also pray that you would help us to see the open doors you have placed before us, that we are a part of your presence, but also called to share the love that you have for us with others. And Lord, that Spirit that came down so many years ago on Pentecost, by that same Spirit, Lord, would you work in us the fruits of that Spirit, especially patience, faithfulness, and self-control so that we might endure. And would you come quickly and hold us close. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.